0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series.
1: Thank you, Mark. Can you hear me? Good evening, everybody. It's it's really great to see all of you here. Um, Two of my favorite things to talk about are race and Buddhism, so tonight I get to talk about both of them. And I'm hoping that we all will be talking together. Um, So that's, that's where we're headed. So in a spirit of don't know mind, we will explore how our habitual practices of seeing others as separate and different from ourselves keep us from embodying the freedom that is our birth Investigating differences such as race within a sacred space of stillness, spaciousness, and community offers the possibility of healing from our socio-cultural conditioning and awakening to freedom. So, two questions: What is meant by freedom, and how does focusing? on difference and separation. How does that help us on that path? There's a collection of koans collected in the 13th century by the Chinese Zen master Wu Men entitled The Gateless Barrier, or The Gateless Gate. So when you hear this phrase, The Gateless Barrier, we may imagine an impenetrable barrier with no opening or gate anywhere. It actually means just the opposite. That life is wide open to us, just as it is. That there really is no barrier anywhere. But we don't typically experience our lives this way, particularly when it comes to differences like race. We feel barriers everywhere, both inside and outside, barriers that we don't want to cross or face, barriers of fear, pain, anger. I'd like to start with a story about uh, barriers that a friend and I face together. This was a conversation with a white friend of mine, and I think uh, it will will demonstrate some so this was a few years back, and we were both checking out online dating. And for those of you who have explored in this realm, you know that you have to make choices about the kind of partner that you would be interested in. And one of those choices is race. So I asked her what categories she had chosen. And I could tell when I was asking her. I I felt some hesitation, like I wasn't sure I wanted to hear her answer. I was afraid of what it might be, so I noticed that in myself. And uh, I I was afraid also that this would create some kind of separation between us. So she said to me, uh, I just picked white men. And um, in the past, I probably wouldn't have asked her anything more, because I would have felt judgmental about that response that she gave me, and then I went on and looked judgmental, and so I maybe would have just said nothing and let it go. And this is uh, an example of the kind of separation that can happen within a racial category, so we're both white white women. And those of us who are trying to be conscious white people, uh, not unconscious or oblivious, Uh, Those are some of the judgments we might have about some other white people. Uh, We might feel superior or different than uh, the people we're judging. And so um, because I had been working some with my my judgments and I had been practicing with racial situations, I I felt like the judgmentalness had loosened its grip on me some, and I could actually mostly uh, ask a question from a place of curiosity not so heavily played with judgment. And so I did ask her, you know, tell me more, why did you just pick that choice? And she said, I don't care if it's politically correct, that's what's true for me. I've never been attracted to Asian men, and I just decided that I'm gonna do what I want, it's too much trouble, and I just don't care. So I noticed at the time that I was uncomfortable with her response. Uh, we happened to be at a movie. The movie was starting, and so the conversation at that moment ended. And because of circumstances, uh, we never actually returned to this conversation. So uh, my process was really an inner one with myself, and I thought about this a lot. I thought, uh, "What's disturbing about this response for me? What, what's unsettling?" Um, and it isn't that I think everyone should date interracially. Some people do think that. They think that's how to address racism. Um, I, I know most of people did initially, but I, I don't think everyone has to or should. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to, um, you know, look at this and not just simplify, not just uh, uh, stay with uh, you know, my, my initial uncomfortable feeling. And so, um, uh, what I came up with is that I wished she had been willing to be more uncomfortable. And and, and, and actually, as I thought about it, I decided she probably had been uncomfortable. Um, so I, I wanted her to feel uncomfortable with her choice of just dating white men rather than simply justifying. It. And the fact that she was justifying it by saying, well, I don't care made me think actually um, she did care and and she was just, in fact, oversimplifying and moving towards comfort. Um, So I was imagining the kind of response that would have been um, more satisfying to me, not simplifying but keeping the complexity, would be something like this. Uh, I'm choosing just white men because that feels familiar and comfortable and yet, I don't feel totally comfortable with that choice, and I'm curious about how I've been socialized. My choice seems to imply that I believe black men or Asian men are so different from me, so foreign, so alien, that I can't even possibly imagine being partners with any black or any Asian man. Uh, or I'm just choosing a couple of categories. So, uh, so I've wanted. I wanted there to be more of that question inside, and um, that's what I'm gonna be inviting all of us into, which is not just the the simple uh, response, but the going deeper and creating a space for the complexity that I think
2: is present
1: uh, with a complicated issue like race. So we create barriers to knowing this complexity of our own experiences and these barriers then become obstacles in terms of our connections with others. We have the opportunity to practice by learning to recognize these barriers and then face them. And our willingness to enter this territory that they have shut us off from creates a possibility of freedom, of finding ourselves in that wide, open, barrierless life. So this process is often uncomfortable. And um, Reb Anderson, who has been one of my uh, teachers, has said, there's a helpful way to feel uncomfortable it guides you back on the path. Within the whole range of not feeling good, there's a small band of not feeling good that's useful. In this band, you actually feel energized to do good after acknowledging the ways you've created separateness, or are lazy, or have bad behaviors. So, this is that band of uh, we're looking for is how can we be uncomfortable and have it energize us, not immobilize us or shut us down. And I think um, our sitting practice really supports us being able to uh, find this place this van discomfort. So Shelley, um, hand out the first page now. I have some handouts for you. And I'm not going to be exactly on the handout, but there will be a number of places where what I say overlaps with what's on the handout. study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. So this comes to us from Jordan, who's an ancestor in the Japanese Zen tradition that I studied in. And in the Buddha way, I and study and self are all one thing. They collapse into study. And study is being into And so this is the invitation, is how to be intimate with race and how it shaped our lives. So I got into this path of paying attention to race because back in my 20s, I fell in love with a black man. And uh, we got married and we had children. And one of the things that I started to notice, I was from a small town, I am from a small town in Wisconsin. And um, so I hadn't had a lot of experience in terms of racial diversity. And I started to notice when we would be out in public, like going to the grocery store or walking at the lake, that we would be treated differently than if I went to the grocery store by myself or I was out with um, my white girlfriend walking out the lake. So I started to notice, oh, uh, things shift what's this about? And I started to be interested and curious and also because of being in an interracial relationship, uh, there was a certain amount of uh, hostility that was directed towards us as a couple. So uh, that happens, I, I think, if you're uh, close with people of color that sometimes uh, the racism is directed towards them also is directed. So um, this opened the door, made race uh, more personal in terms of my own life. And when I had kids, that also was a very helpful thing because they started asking questions. And my, my kids are now, they have two sons, they're 22 and 25, and before coming here tonight, I, I um, told them this story that I'm going to tell you, which neither of them remember, but they thought it was a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so this was when my older son was about five or six or something and there were, on the coffee table was an Ebony magazine which is a black magazine and in the magazine there would always be an eligible bachelor and so he was looking through the magazine and he saw this picture of the eligible bachelor who happened to be in his firefighter outfit and my son, who's into everything, qualified So this caught his attention, and he asked me to read the caption. So it was sort of standard, personal kinds of things. You know, he likes antique cars, and car joy, and, you know, he likes some things. And what he's looking for is a woman who is active in the black community. So Kadine said, "What's the black community. So I tried to explain to him what the black community is. He says, am I in the black community? I said, yes, you are in the black community. He says, are you in the black community? I said, no, I'm not in the black community. Why, Why not? So I said, well, it's because I'm white. And he said, well, does that mean you're in the white community? I said, well, yeah, actually I am, but those of us who are white don't really think about it like that. And you might be aware of this, if you're white, then you probably haven't in your life been thinking about your white community. Why is that? So this is part of our socialization into thinking very individualistically about our separate selves. And um, so we don't think about um, we don't tend to even think about our racial identities let alone think about being in community. And also we're trying to distance from who's been in community as Whites, like the KKK, you know, that isn't we so, um, so when I get questions like this, then it kind of, I have to figure out how to respond and also figure out uh, why is that? Why are things the way they are? So uh, this is what opened the door for me. And my hope in this talk tonight is that uh, something will be touched in you that will be useful to you in your own journey, your own ability to connect within and across racial groups, uh, your own capacity to contribute to more equity. Um, that's my hope, is that something will be touched in you. And I, I, I thought about this when I was sitting. Uh, the thing I've thought many times, which I thought again tonight, is that I I feel like my practice is really perhaps the most important thing I could do in terms of contributing to working with race. Because I think, uh, you know, what's needed is a very open, tender heart, and uh, so I think our practice can help us with that, and that's what will help us connect with ourselves and each other, so. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping you will find something this.
2: So why should we study the self?
1: Nogan says we should study the self. And uh, in Buddhism, we often talk about how everything is part of an interconnected whole. Each thing having no fixed essence, no separate identity, And it's not set from the causes and conditions that contribute uh, to create our interrelationship. So the self and all phenomena are considered to be constructed and empty of inherent or essential nature. So although this may be true, often we don't experience our lives this way. We we feel separate, and in terms of race, we feel kind of a fixed identity and you know, our racial identity uh, for those of us uh, who are white might be simply checking the box, which were irritated, why do I have to do the to check that box, which doesn't feel very relevant to my life. Um, it feels very fixed, fixed category. So, Rev. Anderson had this to say, the fundamental delusion of human beings is the belief that we exist separately and independently from the rest of the universe. And this illusion is very, very common for us to uh, experience, particularly in terms of race. So um, one thing I think it's important for you to know is that now we know from science that human beings are 99.9% similar. Or aligned. So, the so called racial categories that uh, are used in the United States, or it's done differently in different countries, uh, wherever racial categories are used, there isn't uh, a biological genetic distinction that separates this category from this category from this category. So, we tend to think of them as natural biological. But what's happened is that biology, certain physical characteristics, have been used to create separation and to justify um, unfair treatment. And it's been done uh, so well, so pervasively, that the common sense understanding is that there are distinct genetic separate categories that are basis. And the racial categories in the United States have changed, are continuing to change over time. So in the United States, every time there's been a census, the categories have been different. So even every 10 years, this is because it's politically contested which categories show up on the census. So this just gives us one example about the socially constructed nature of racial categories. So I'm trying to make the case that it isn't sufficient to conceptually organize around our oneness or our interconnectedness, but actually it's useful for us to see where we feel separate and how we feel separate. How how has this been constructed? It's a white relational practice to not pay attention to race. So this is not accidental. This is socialized. So that uh, what has been the dominant hierarchy stays in place. If, if, if the people who are dominant think this is just natural, this is just normal, uh, then not disruption of that hierarchy. So I think just by starting to pay more attention, we disrupt whiteness as it's been constructed. Uh, we start to um, we start to learn about it, which gives us more. To be skillful in doing something different. It's a very common practice in the United States among white people to focus on our sameness, on our common humanity. And while this is a good thing, it is insufficient to uh, address racial inequality. And so we have our ideals of equality and fairness, and uh, to, we want to implement those ideas, ideals, but the problem is is that if we say, well, we're all the same, we're all just human beings, um, and we focus on sameness, it doesn't actually take into account the disparities that continue to exist and the ways that race impacts our brothers and sisters of health. So we... we and don't see what's really important in terms of realities in their lives if we're saying well we're all just the same. So uh, this is this is I think uh, the socialization many of us had was uh, to think this was a good and right thing to just focus on sameness. I know this was my conditioning, and I have embarrassing stories to tell about my early. Uh, in my interracial relationship when I thought it wasn't polite to even mention to my friends that I was gay a black man. I, I, I just thought you shouldn't say it somehow. So, like, I, I was at the Lake Erie Fanshell with Richard, my partner, and um, I knew one of my friends was going to be there. And she comes up to us, and I introduce them to each other, and she was, like, shocked. She said, you're black! <laughs> Which most people actually don't react that explicitly. But, you know, she was just caught up after she thought I would have mentioned it. But I thought you shouldn't say anything because if you notice someone's race, it might be like discriminating. And I actually know people still do this. So I, even most of the story is 30 years old. But people still do this. Um, I, I have the good fortune of, of teaching quite a few students about on this topic and so I hear their stories and I know uh, that there are young no people still who are under the influence of this idea uh, that the polite good thing is not the most. Serious. So we have this attachment to sameness and uh, attachment to wanting to do it right and to be good. And this is part of where the work is, is to notice these attachments that we have. Um, so I'll be inviting you to notice the beautiful So race is always in the room. It's always in the room. I think it's also a common uh, idea among white people that race isn't in the room until there's a person of color. Uh, but race is in a white family just like, not just like but in the same way that race was in my interracial family race is in a white family it's not just race and family of color so um, again we've been socialized those of us who are white right, to, to think about race as being about somebody other than us and it takes I think some deliberate conscious attention to start to see the ways for those of us who have been socialized not to pay attention, to start to see the ways that we've been shaped by race, And I'm going to offer you some opportunities about how, how to uh, pay attention. So the name of this talk, Understanding Our Racial Selves, Racial Moments of Spiritual Practice. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about what I mean by racial moments. And how to work with it, but really it's just any time you notice race. And some people don't notice race a lot, so they have to kind of cultivate uh, paying attention. But I'm inviting you into what I call racial mindfulness. So this means um, noticing things about race and then staying compassionately present to yourself and to other people. So... That you notice thoughts, you notice feelings, you notice body sensations. And uh, this may be uncomfortable. So then you notice that. And uh, whatever you notice, the idea is to hold it loose. Uh, to just be noticing, to be bringing curiosity for what you notice, to be living with trying to pay attention, and also to be asking questions. And I think questions. Uh, A really helpful way to uh, unsettle what's been constructed that's out of our So, there's a new book out that is related to this talk called The Way of Tenderness Awakening to Embrace Sexuality and Gender. Just came out last month. So, uh, and it's pretty short, so it's a, a quick, quick read, but also uh, I think really useful. It's written by a woman named Zenju Earthland Manu, and she is um, a Zen priest who identifies as African-American and lesbian. She's out in Oakland. So I included a couple of quotes from her book here. She says, the path of spirit is grounded in the body experience. We may think that oneness should exclude marks of diversity like race, sexuality, and gender. Yet oneness is inclusive of everything in our lives. She also talks about uh, her experience in sanghas that were predominantly white. And um, her experience has been that when people of color have brought up issues related to oppression, that it's been fairly common that they were told, well, this is irrelevant because uh, we're focused on the idea of no self and uh, letting go of the self. And so she also writes, many mistake the teaching of emptiness to mean that we need to speak of race sexuality, or gender, because form is emptiness. Some say we can't speak of them because emptiness is form. These teachings are not about the forms that we see with our eyes. They are about the levels of our awareness of form, including our tendency to fill our hearts with notions that distort form. The message of this sutra does not emphasize emptiness as disembodied, as being without a body. And she writes quite a bit about uh, this point about embodiment. So uh, you might be interested in in checking out this book in terms of relating to this class. So what is the racial set? And I have a couple of quotes here I'd like to share. Uh, These come from John Powell, the first is this. Race is a relational concept based on ideas of self and other. We are continually in the process of racing each other. Before someone can be said to possess a racial characteristic or identity, there must first be a process of racing in which the attributes that differentiate racial classifications are designated. So John uses the term race as a verb, that we race ourselves and each other uh, by by kind of putting race onto, onto us or others. And uh, let's see, I know I have some examples about that I'd like to share. So uh, this is one example. This was a white man who was going in to uh, teach in a public school as part of his um, job. They had a connection with the school. He wasn't the teacher, but was going in as a guest guest teacher. And he was very anxious about it, afraid that the kids would make fun of him, that they wouldn't like him. And he and and, and some of the stories I know. I know because students have told them to me, so uh, I knew from talking to him that um, he uh, brought up the racial composition of who he was imagining these students would be and the kinds of thoughts that they would be having about him. So he's he's not even yet. he hasn't even met them. This is all in his own mind, and this is how he became white to himself is because he's imagining all oh, the be kids of color there also heard another story from a student. This was a white man who was working as a cook, and um, he was in the kitchen, and his co-workers, uh, he was working with a couple of black guys, and they're cooking, and I don't know if anybody's ever been a cook, but I've been a blind cook, and so like when you're cooking, it's like very uh, dynamic. It's, it's almost like dance or jazz or something, so the cook's room. There's music on in the kitchen, and they're cooking, and they start to dance. And um, this young white man was saying he didn't dance, and they and, and they I kind of said, hey, come on, let's dance. And um, and he said, I I, I don't white I got some dance. <laughs> so you know, here we see there's a moment where it's moving towards connection and shared fun in the kitchen, and he is bracing himself and. I can't dance, I'm white. So he separates, he steps away from that connection. So this is what's meant by racing. Here's another quote from John Powell. The self, and particularly the white self, has a history. Because the self has a history, it is constantly being made and remade. This process goes largely unnoticed and hides behind the veil of naturalness. But it would be a serious error to see this as only an internal undertaking. This is part of the myth of the individual subject, that the self is internal and private. We must expose the social nature of the subject. This subject is not just held together, by other subjects, but also by our norms, practices, and institutions. This subject is related to other subjects and to the world. So I think this is a great quote for getting at how um, we tend to think about this separate private self not having awareness of how much we're shaped by what's around us. And so we tend to think this is me. Um, so he's inviting it into deconstructing, taking apart our sense of self. To study the self is to forget the self. This is part of one, totally the same. We need to study the self, and then we forget the self. We see that the self exists only in relationship to others and everything else. Forgetting the self is the practice of letting go of all that goes into creating a sense of self. We what are the ingredients of creating the self? And so this is our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our roles in life, our sense of identity. So this is what will be uh, explored as we think about studying the self. Another quote from Zenju Earthland Manual, Our aspiration to be better human beings may inadvertently hinder us. To be good people, we tend to bypass the messiness of our lives in order to enter the gate of tranquility. So our job, in terms of uh, my invitation to you about paying attention to race, is first of all, studying just what we're noticing. Um, And we can do this with the self in general, studying things like, who do I think I am? What feels impossible? Uh, But we can also translate our study more specifically to noticing about race. And, So I'd like to talk just a little bit about what I mean by practicing racial mindfulness. So this means relating to ourselves and to each other with tenderness, with curiosity and compassion as we face this human dilemma of wanting to experience interconnectedness and not always knowing how to do. So one uh, thing we're noticing, thoughts, feelings, sensations, sitting upright with that, meaning we don't lean into it, attaching or grasping or away from it. I don't like that, yuck, I don't want to look at that. Trying to just hold our seat. And then uh, staying present with whatever we're noticing, holding that loosely. Starting where we are, because there's often a discrepancy. Between what we notice in our minds and our ideals. And so to be kind to ourselves when we notice that discrepancy. Letting go of self judgment, and we'll notice our judgments and then we let go of things. Learning from whatever we think of as our mistakes. So um, it's fairly common, I think, around racial. Situations that people don't know what to do, and sometimes, uh, in not knowing what to do, they say or do nothing. Sometimes they say something, but they do it out of anger and irritation. So, when we make what we think of as a mistake, I think it's really especially important to sit with that and to learn from it, and especially when we're silent and do nothing. Um, to pay attention, like rather than feel like guilty and bad and then just want to ignore it, can we sit with that and just stay with the looking at it and help ourselves so that we're better prepared for the next time, the next situation? Uh, so that we, we learn about like, what was my fear, what was my concern, what was my hesitation. We can learn about that from paying attention to. I've also uh, posed for you some questions to ask yourself about race. Um, I've been recently reading uh, a book by Rodney Smith uh, about awakening, and he suggests these as very useful questions, just to say, what is going on here? What is this? So to ask really broad questions. Um, How do we participate in creating race? We can ask in any situation, how might race be shaping the situation, perhaps in unintended ways? I think it's especially useful to notice when am I aware of my racial identity and when am I not aware of it. So like any identity, it's it's fluid and shifting about uh, when we have awareness. So I know for myself, uh, you know, when I get home, with my young adult children. This doesn't happen so much anymore. But, you know, if we're talking about who's going to do the grocery shopping, who's going to do the dishes, I'm not thinking, oh, here's my black sons. I'm white. Like, I'm not, you know, we're just like doing life. It's not in the corner. But tonight, just tonight, one of my sons said to me, he was talking, it, it was a complaint he was making about his life he talked about his friends, and he was comparing himself to his friends, and I said, yeah, but what about your friends? And
2: he said, yeah, none of
1: them have quite money. So, and I, I know, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things behind that statement, and I, I could feel like, oh, is that it? Like, should I feel offended about this? Is there some, some negative theories in life? And, um, uh, I didn't actually feel offended, but I think in those moments, like, yeah, now is in the foreground. Race is in the foreground. And um, I think when it comes, yeah, it's a very tricky thing. I, I'm thinking about a former student of mine, an African-American man, and he knew that I had biracial kids and that I was a single parent at that time. And um, he happened, to be working in an internship here in the cities. And he was working, it just so happened, with a lot of white moms of quadracial kids. And the students I'm working with are training to be therapists, so. He was in supervision with me, and he was um, complaining quite a bit about his clients, these white moms, how they were so passive, and they weren't good parents, and they should be doing something different. And he did this for a while, and then he looked at me and said, Oh, but I'm not talking about you. Um, So now what should I do with that? And then he says to me, Because you're not really white. (laughs) So now what should I do with that? (laughs) And, um...
2: So, so
1: I think, actually, this is a, a, a little bit of a challenging moment because there's an invitation here. Um, an invitation is for me to feel like I'm the good white mom. I'm not like those white moms, passive, not good parents. So there's this invitation for me to be the good white person who's maybe so good she's not even white. And um, <laughs> so I said to him, you know, I'm really just like those. And uh, you know, so that we could talk about it, because he's not going to be able to be helpful as a therapist to those moms, those kids, if he's thinking uh, that they're they're bad moms. And he's also, I'm not doing him any favor if he has me on the pedestal and thinks I am to pedestal, which I certainly don't. Um, so, so I wanted to take this apart for him, but it there's like this little thing person. So, uh, you know, now he's telling me. Um, and so I know what he means, because we talked about more. He, he said, well, I haven't met a white person like you before. Uh, and so what he means is, I was a person who was interested in race. So he hadn't met, he hadn't met uh, a white person before who was interested in race. And, and so you think about, well, what does whiteness mean? And uh, you can't get rid of. Um, racial categories, like some people think. Well, if the categories aren't biologically based, we should just get rid of them. Uh, We really are all the same, biologically. Um, But the problem is, because there are still racial inequities, racial disparities, we do still have these racial identities, And so we can't get rid of them. Uh, But we can try to um, pull them to sleep. Uh, We could try to live our values. Um, not let the barriers separate us from other people or from parts of ourselves. So when I was talking about sitting upright, you know this was my practice with him of not getting too pulled into any direction, but really to help, you know help us have a conversation, to create a space where we could have a conversation about what were the assumptions he was making about me, about those uh, moms, um, and and so that was a big, useful conversation for us. So it's often not clear what's an appropriate response. Um, and because we live in a racially stratified culture, which we've all been socialized into, there will be dissonance that will happen. And um, so, The important thing to know is that this will happen and then not to shut down and just go away. Like maybe you're going to shut down instantly because that's what we do. But then can you sit with that? And can you figure out how to not just disconnect but how to reconnect? How to come back, stay connected to yourself and if there's an opportunity to connect other people so you don't just go away in fear. Um, I I know... um, from talking with this uh, man I was just mentioning. Um, he grew up in the South, and his mother had trained him uh, always do better than white people. This is the only way to survive, is to try and do better than white people. And um, actually, I, I do feel like about this. i try not to attach to that. Um, I got an email from him this last year. Now he works in a setting with mostly white clients. And so he said, this is really good for me because I have to empathize and open my heart, and um, I'm, he said, I'm doing good work. Um, so um, uh, I think he he came a long way from that conditioning he had of feeling you have to be better in order to uh, belong, to be good. So here's some of what we can pay attention to what I'm calling polarized self-identities, attachments, and scripts, all of it being barriers to separation. So our attachments, uh, I've offered some of the common ones that I've seen in myself and others, uh, attachment to being hung blind, and all human beings, attachment to wanting to appear to be a conscious white person, to an idealized self-image of racial innocence, to being comfortable, to feeling shame and guilt, to wanting approval, and this might be wanting approval from white people or it might be wanting approval from people of color. There can be attachments to practices of internalized oppression or to internalized superiority or privilege. So uh, when we notice an attachment and we sit with it, we hold it loosely, we're curious about it, we ask questions about it, maybe we talk about it or um, Polarized self-identities, this is really common in our culture that we're invited into thinking in this either-or way, either I'm a good person or a bad racist person conscious or ignorant, oppressor or oppressed, perpetrator or victim, innocent or guilty, powerful or powerless, privileged or oppressed. So these dichotomies, although they are useful on one level of pointing towards some kind of pattern, to just stop there in that dichotomous labeling is not so useful, like there's a whole bunch that could be unpacked about that to look at uh, the fluidity, because many of us, because categories, we have all these different categories of difference, not just race, uh, but gender, and social class, and sexual orientation, and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, we might feel uh, privileged in one, we might have privilege in one, and not have privilege in another. So it gets to be a complicated inner reality, and this can shift in one moment, feeling privileged in another moment, the um, so, this is a complicated in of landscape that we have the opportunity to explore. I think anytime that we notice dichotomous thinking, uh, it can be a, a doorway you know, to look at oh, what's that about? What's here? It isn't so neat and tidy we fit into these two categories. So I am going to give homework for those who are interested. Um, the first practice is what I call a facial moments practice, where you systematically pay attention. So you observe yourself in your own life. And the instructions are to go about your daily life as you normally do. And when grace comes up into your awareness, through a thought, feeling, or interaction, please observe it. Don't change it, judge it, or do something different just because you're doing this practice. Simply document the experience using the format that I provide. And I think it's actually helpful to document because um, it's easy to forget and it's also, if you write it down, you have a better opportunity to see patterns and to do a little bit of deeper reflecting. So the the process, and if you decide to do this practice, you could do this process of writing that I'm suggesting or another format if another one uh, suits you better. But what I'm recommending is that you write what's the situation, who's involved, it might be just you, what are your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and or the words spoken? And uh, what what happens afterwards, after your initial kind of writing it down as you reflect further? What do you notice uh, about what happened? What's your understanding? What are the thoughts and feelings that come after the initial thoughts and feelings? So I invite my students to do this practice for a couple of months. And um, I think many of them who do it, who wholeheartedly engage with the practice, find it life-changing. Because they didn't know before uh, what was going on in their own minds. They didn't know um, their habits, their, their thinking habits, their relational habits. And so if you do write it down, you get that opportunity to go back and reflect See the patterns. Um, and if you're a person, I know it says just go out the life as you normally know do, but if you're a person who thinks I'm not having any racial, I can't think of what to do. I'm sitting at home and
2: not around anybody and
1: nothing's happening, um, you could spark some for yourself. You could go watch a little YouTube clip. Uh, or be delivered, you could go look at the newspaper and see, oh, there's race in the news. So you could, if you're, you're just not having those moments, go, go looking for them. So, um, I would like to share just a couple examples with you so if you can see, uh, and everybody's different, so, um your moments might not be like this, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So the situation at the intersection of Cedar, Hiawatha and Franklin Avenues. I see a car being driven by an African woman wearing a traditional-looking black headscarf with a bumper sticker that says, No one is free when others are oppressed. It was all just me. It, this isn't my vision. This isn't my system. Um, and then the response, I'm surprised. I associate bumper stickers like that one with white progressives, not black Africans. Dressed in traditional Muslim attire, my surprise is quickly followed by delight and curiosity. What's her story, I wonder? And then the further reflection. A few minutes after registering my feelings, I feel saddened by my response. Why such a shock that she should connect to the message in that sticker? Have I completely believed the dominant interpretation that African women are oppressed and that stickers like that are on them? Do I think that only white people, read Western, are free and unoppressed? Would I have felt surprised if the car hadn't been driven by an African woman, but by an African-American woman? I think it would have depended on whether the African-American woman looked aggressive or not. <laughs> because I have a few black women friends who are entirely capable of driving around the such messages on their car <laughs> So I'm thinking it was the combination of factors that played into my response, my beliefs about African women, Muslim women. I was also a little uncomfortable that I felt such delight. Is it patronizing? Is my thinking it's cool? It's cool somewhat condescending? I'm thinking it might be, but I think I also appreciate the fact that she shook up some of my assumptions you see a wonderful kind of inner process of noticing, questioning, all by just noticing that bumper sticker and who was driving the car. So that's a moment, that's a visual moment. Here's a moment, a white nuclear family walks into a cafe Mom, dad, baby boy, and young girl, probably three or four years old. The little girl is clutching a black baby doll. And the writer was silent in the process. Didn't engage with her. Uh, his response? Curiosity. A little bit of discomfort. Some judgment over my discomfort. And then the reflection. Thinking how it doesn't seem weird if a little black girl holds a white baby doll. But if a white girl does, it's seen as political, your message. By whom? By me? Perhaps. I think it's seen as political by mainstream society. And if it is political, it's a political stance, I would probably agree with. So what my discomfort? Am I channeling my family here, and seeing through their eyes? I've noticed that I do that sometimes. Instead of having my own response, I'll have my mother's. It's very disorienting when it happens. i remember remembering my response the first time I encountered a white person who had lots of newspapers, books, articles, posters about people of color all over her house. I remember feeling discomfort that an all-white family chose to surround themselves with the perspective of people of color. At that time, I felt like she was trying to be something she wasn't, That to embrace all these other cultures, she was somehow neglecting her own. Now I'm not so sure. So you see all the assumptions that are in there about people and kinds of people and exploring what's going on inside. So this is what I'm inviting you into is for you to notice for you to pay attention to your own racial moments. And maybe you even had a racial moment while I was reading. So the other thing that I would recommend if you're interested in homework is to go online and take what are called the implicit association tests. These are tests that have been developed to get at what's unconscious in our minds. So we have our conscious values, and then we have really most of our mind which is unconscious out of our awareness. So there's a lot of talk now uh, about implicit bias and actually trainings going on with police and judges and people working in court systems and schools about implicit bias as a way to try and uh, work to intervene with bias is happening. So these tests, you go in and there's different tests you can take, um, one of the things you'll notice, you'll notice uh, white dominance, how white is at the center, because there's a test of uh, uh, white and black, and there's a test of white and Asian, and maybe white and native. So you see how it's always in comparison to white, uh, and what you're given are words and images, mm-hmm. and there's instructions given to you about clicking when you see certain things. And um, it works with your processing, how quickly you process certain associations for parents. So I would invite you to go and explore if you're interested. It gives you results about your preferences. And uh, there's lots of these tests, not just about race, about other things, too, if you're interested. Um, so that's my suggestion to you if you would like it a little bit. There's been lots of interesting research about implicit bias. One of the studies I'm aware of was looking at college applicants in the study. This was was designed, it wasn't really looking at college applicants, but the participants were told they were to decide who to, um, who would they be selecting as applicants and they were given materials like transcript and some other materials And in the conditions in the study, the very same materials were used. Sometimes it was identified as a white person, sometimes it was identified as a black person. And then these were white college students who were deciding who should be admitted. And when the quality, well, and they, they were supposed to decide is this person marginally qualified, moderately qualified, or really strongly qualified. That's how they were supposed to sort these out. So when uh, a person looked marginally qualified, uh, there was no difference. The white students uh, rejected whether they were white or black applicants. If uh, the quality of the applicant was, that they thought was moderately qualified, uh, there started to be a difference and and white applicants were seen as, uh, they were picked more than if they were black. When the applicants were perceived to be strongly qualified, this was their biggest discrepancy. And so they were less likely to choose a black applicant uh, when they were strongly qualified than the white applicants. So this is implicit bias. So the the conditions are the same conditions, except you're totally racist. And I'm guessing they, like most white people, are well-intentioned, have values around fairness and equality, but have been shaped by a culture in which they're stereotyping. And um, this is influencing how they perceive these applicants. So all of us have some kind of bias, and um, there are ways to work with our bias. Maybe I'll talk about that some next week. There's research uh, that uh, looks at what, what can we do so that we aren't acting on our minds. So the other side of your page, um, I've given you what are called racial scripts or patterns. And these are cultural patterns that are common. Kind of, um, you know, because, because we're all socialized in this environment then we have patterned ways of response responding which we might think purchase unique to us but reflect the conditions of our culture. And so among white people, uh it's very common to have the kinds of patterns that are called scripts of denial, reflecting connection mm-hmm. of racial privilege. Mm-hmm. And then in response to those, um, it's common to have scripts of ac- accusation among people who are experiencing the effects of racism. And it's also uh, common to have scripts of self-blame where uh, the messages from the dominant culture have been internalized. Then there are scripts uh, of confession, and these reflect among white people, some awareness of racial privilege, um, but still maintaining some objectification, or you could say getting stuck or on fixed ideas like "I'm guilty," "I must be racist," and in fact, um, you know, I'm so guilty that I can't do anything but think about how guilty I am. So this is now organizing your attention and your awareness all around your guilt, uh, which means it's, it's, it's attached. Um, so I, I wanted to spend some time with these patterns and, and actually have to do some talking among each other, but I'm aware that we have like maybe 20 minutes left, and so I was thinking about opening things up for questions, and then for those people who decide to come back next week, if you could bring your, your sheets, I know it's easy to forget them, But if you could bring your sheets, I would like to give you a little time to look at these scripts and then have some conversation in smaller groups about maybe what you're noticing in your racial moments and your thoughts about these scripts. So at this point, I would invite anybody who would like to make a comment or ask a question. Yes. So
0: sometimes <coughs> you act or think a certain way and then it seems to go all right. But I'm not sure how to get all the time
2: in my work and my privilege. And then sometimes
0: it goes south or something. And it's the same, you're doing the same thing. How, how do you? How do we deal with that? Or why
1: is that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's happening because life is messy. So, uh, so like we want to script, we want to say, just tell me the right thing to say, so I don't offend anybody. And uh, I, I have my students do this. where like, I give them a card to write on. What are your hopes and fears? And uh they get to write anonymously and then we I collect them and I pass them out so somebody different is reading the statement. I bet you two thirds of them are the fear I'm gonna say something offensive. So um this is because we care and we we want to connect with people. But we we don't know how to respond be unless like on the spot we try to feel into the situation, we try to read the other person. We're, we're making it up as we go. And so what worked one other time might not work this time. And even with the same person, what might have worked in the past might not work another time because this is how life is. So um, one of the things in, in this book I recommended to you from um, um, Zenju, she talks, that this is what she, in know title, Tenderness. This is why the tenderness, because we feel vulnerable because we, we might not get it right. And that's why if it doesn't go well and there's a disconnect, then how do you take care of yourself? How do you recover? How do you hang in there? So you can try again to connect? Yes?
2: And I would just add with that, I think um, as a white person, um, white people aren't really used to making mistakes. We're used to being right. So I think there's an added layer um, for of
0: nervousness around that. Yeah, actually,
1: if you want a racial moment, you could type in online white supremacy culture. And there's a reading that I assigned to my students, and I had students say, I didn't even want to open that up. And you'll be surprised by the characteristics of white supremacy culture, perfectionism being one of them, uh, that you want to do it perfectly, not just good, but perfect. And um, it might be interesting to look at that list of characteristics and see what you think, and they also apply them to organizations. And uh, that might be useful for working organizations. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> A relatively recent invention. So, so, it's considered to be hardwired into our brain that we do us and them kind of categorizing. But the way that we've done that has changed across time. So, in the early years of this country, the difference that mattered was were you were a Christian. That was the initial difference that was relevant. And so, In different places and at different times, the difference that matters has changed. And we we actually see this happening in the United States, now. like in terms of race. You know, technically, people who come from places like Saudi Arabia, technically they are white, regardless of their skin color, based on our system of racial categorization. What we see in emerging racial categories that we might call Middle Eastern. Although my students from Saudi Arabia, I just learned this recently, they are offended by the term Middle Eastern. And they much prefer to be called Arabian uh, or from Saudi Arabia. So, uh, and, and it makes total sense to me once they pointed this out to me, that Middle East, what does that mean? Well, it's based on we're the center, and we think about who's to the east of us and who's to the Middle East, just uh, we're the center. And so, uh, I, I'm learning from them. But uh, even though we're hardwired to uh, do us-them, we, we can um, help ourselves out when we notice that tendency that we're thinking about a them. Even if you just imagine a person, and you think, what fruit do they like? What vegetable do they like? I wonder what kind of music they like. If you start to imagine them, you're you're breaking down that us-them categorizing. So I don't really know if there's been quality, but there have been changes in how we categorize. Uh, actually, my experience with with my, my I have these Saudi Arabian students who are in my class where we're talking about race, and really, it's very hard for them to understand the way we do race in this country because it doesn't fit with uh, what they've learned. Uh, so it's it's very hard. And actually, I have a, a student from China in my class, and he came up to me after class last week, and he said why is it that all of the students are so afraid of being racist? And um, he didn't understand that. Like, and I tried to explain to him, this is our our culture. Um, this is the pattern. Um, we, don't, we certainly don't want to be viewed as racist. So um, sometimes it helps to have people from other places pointing out our patterns. Yes? One of the most stunning moments of my life was on playing
0: back Google D's, and I've been in... Belize for about a weekend. And I just noticed on the corners were people white, Latino, and black all kind
2: of hanging out together. And I had really, really one of those that so I kind of did. And then going back, I was riding with a woman who happened to be
0: not African American, but dark black. And she said that she grew up in Belize. And when she got to
2: the United States as a teenager, she was absolutely stunned by the power of racism. She moved to LA and it was just such a startling moment to me to realize there were
0: places that weren't racist like here and just kind of a. And I was just a really, I was in my 20s and it was life changing to realize that there were places where people. I don't know if it's true that they really do go under, but she certainly said there's a huge difference. It was interesting.
1: Anybody else want to share a story from your life? Yes.
2: So, um, I'm Chinese, and uh, when I first came to the U.S., I didn't feel attracted to anybody who were not Chinese. You know, it was just, I think, you know, you were saying it's a level of familiarity. To so the degree that I can't even tell the difference between a white person and the b white person, how can I tell the difference? You know, it's but, but then you get more uh, familiar and more... Um, Tuned to the loss between peoples and whites. Then you start to, you know, start to develop this empathy with them. It's like you're staring at monkeys and they all look the same. You can't really picture out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's some uh, you know, we gotta give ourselves some some time and some patience instead of saying, well, I better sit there to think about how can I be a better person. Sometimes it's just natural and you're happening
1: you got to give yourself the experience and exposure and time to develop. Yeah, I appreciate your naming about that patience that um, I know in my own mind like I, I have thoughts that I, I thought, I wouldn't mean, have these kind of thoughts anymore because I've been paying a lot of attention to race over many years and I still have thoughts that don't fit my values come. And now I try to notice it like I was in Mexico and there was um, I was staying at a place where there was this um, Mexican extended family staying there. And I just realized how many stereotypes I had about who I thought, who looked Mexican because, it, it, you know, I just challenged my stereotypes. So um, this is the thing about patience, patience, holding it loosely, being curious to yourself. Uh, I think that that kindness is the only way to uh, stay with what can be uncomfortable and even painful to be noticing.
2: Other stories,
1: comments, or questions? Yes. Um, I think the question that kind of
2: haunts me white is that um, we don't other than talk about like um, white privilege and things like that it seems like like we belong white people all together and I don't even know like what is that mean white and it feels like I don't know know what that means. But then I went to China last spring and it was kind of interesting because Our Chinese guide um, was talking about how people that she knows see white people, you know, or Americans or whatever. She said, you know, they have big noses, long noses, they have long noses. And then she said, and there was a sort of joke, like, we had to eat all our food because there were people in America who were (laughs) (laughs) starving. And so, I mean, I think sometimes you almost have to culture, to see how other people see you, it. because it's like we talk about all these other races and being conscious of that,
1: but it seems like there's just so much that's assumed that we know about being white, and that's a big question I have, I guess. What is that? Yeah, well that's a great question, and uh, I have to say, it, 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 it took me a while um, I was doing a dissertation on white identity, and I, I started to interview white women who were in interracial relationships. And I was looking at my transcripts, and I was like, I, I couldn't see. Like, I couldn't see it. Even though we've been talking about race, I was thinking, what's the whiteness here? So, it takes a while, and um, I think it is helpful to put yourself in a situation where you're the different one. And so, although it's great to go to China, you can actually have those sort of cultural experiences in the Twin Cities, and, and you probably have to move out of your comfort zone a little bit and go places you don't usually go. I would highly recommend it. So um, this is something I ask my students to do, and I, I know they have good adventures. Um, going places where they're not in the majority. So I think that is useful. Um one another website you might find interesting, uh give you something to bump up against, is um it's called something like things white people like. And uh, there's a number of different blog posts. And it's it's meant in humor. Um uh, so I I think I think it um uh useful
2: to, to look at that.
0: Things white people like. Yes? Um, something that has helped me lately, yeah. um, I'm writing a book a uh, novel about um, like the experience of um, colonialism in, in Cambodia, but um, just realizing that whiteness is actually a global phenomenon mm-hmm. that is supported by multi-billion dollars corporations to create things like white clean. General white and like all these things that are sort of beyond nationality, right? It's like, it is on one element, very much about form. And I think and actually, that's uh, the scary part, is how white-scrubbed how it is. So I think that's something that's important to remember, too, when we think of all my privilege: that it's like that this concept about it not being personal always. Because like race isn't always personal, it's just what you
1: have. Like, that's that form. So, uh, Yeah, I, I appreciate you doing that naming. And so I'm thinking I will talk more about whiteness uh, another time. I'll, I'll come back to that also. Yes.
0: I get confused in my art, kind of, in uh, the thought of um, what's whiteness? And because it's so mixed up with what is being raised in the U.S. and what is being raised in Minnesota, and but particularly the U.S. and just the idea of Americanism.
2: And,
0: and yet, there's many people of color in Americanism, and it's, it's very, you know, it's messy. Mm-hmm.
1: like you were saying. You know, when I think of my own white identity and... I'm with there. it's messy, complicated, and complicated by the fact of different identities. And many times people use the terms white and American synonymously. So if someone just says American, and they haven't put a qualifier in front of it, like Asian or African, uh, it's assumed you're talking about a white person. Um, So this is a thing like whiteness is done. There are things you could say uh, on the big picture level about whiteness or white privilege, but there's also the local level. And so you're right. There's, There's a culture, a local culture in Minnesota that is different than the local culture in Colorado. Oh and, and even, even like my students, um, I teach over at Monotony. There's like I don't know fifteen, eighteen thousand people in the town. a number of my students think that it's a really big culturally diverse place to come to a town of eighteen thousand. And and our campus that has maybe five percent of people of color is like the most exposure they have. So there's not just Um, Minnesota, there's like the city and the country. So those things all shape how we do race. To ask the question, huh? The spirit's Because um, you're naming the extremes. Too much, not enough. So, this is, this is the question that we have. And I think many white people who haven't paid attention to race, when they do start paying attention, then they feel hyper conscious. And I, I had some students that said, um, you're saying, well, now I'm walking down the wall, and I'm noticing every single person of color, and I'm wondering, should I say hello to each them? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so this is a good dilemma to be having, like, oh, I've started to notice something, and I don't know what to do. Um, so there isn't a simple answer. But I think if you haven't been paying attention, I suggest paying attention more. If, if, if you feel like you're paying attention all the time, relax. So, but you get to play with it. And and I, I think it's really interesting what you're noticing about how it's okay with you if certain people do it, but not other people. And, you know, that's all the construction of your ideas about it. And so in this exploration, this construction, this is us constructing ourselves. That's how we do it. So I'm aware that we're almost out of time. And I was thinking it might be nice if we just sit for a moment together.